All right, hey, I hope you're enjoying the podcasts uh, that are going out during the week. I hope you're enjoying the devotionals that are going out during the week that explain the chapter that we cover here on Sunday in greater detail. And uh, you've heard a lot of our uh, staff voices uh, already and more, more to come this week. And uh, share that with your, with your friends. Share that uh, with one another on your uh, Facebook page. And it's, it's getting lots of great traction right now. As we open chapter number three, I want to just get you right back in the groove here. Grab your, your journal and let's, let's get ready to go. I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine a, a, a child throwing a temper tantrum, throwing themselves in the floor and, and screaming at their parents, stop treating me like a child. I'm not a baby. This is exactly what's happening between Paul and the people at Corinth. They are throwing a temper tantrum, and they are saying to the one who led them to Christ and formed the church in Corinth, stop treating us like infants. What has happened in the years, in the exchange we call zero Corinthians, in the back and forth conversation, is we understand that the Corinthians are now pursuing a deeper Deeper, air quotes, deeper wisdom. Uh, they're taking the world's philosophy and the world's wisdom deeper with, and they're folding it in uh, to the church and, and, and they call it a pursuit of deeper spiritual things. And Paul says, your pursuit of this deeper wisdom is threatening to strip the gospel of its power. At the same time, they have divided the congregation up into ownership groups, as we've seen in the previous chapters. Some of you say, I am Paul. Some of you say, I am Apollos. Some of you say, I am of Cephas. Some of you say, I am of Jesus. They've built a little hyphenated culture in the church where everybody belongs to a different speaker. Everybody belongs to a different spiritual leader in the church. And that division reveals their foolishness and their immaturity in Paul's eyes. So again, the Corinthians are fixated on Sophia. You'll see this in a lot of technical writings or theological writings. Sophia means wisdom. And in this context, it's a bad word because Paul's saying, you're pursuing the world's wisdom and you're trashing God's. You're pursuing the world's Sophia, but what about God's Sophia? His wisdom is found in the gospel. This is where you, God reveals his genius. I mean, you, you come up with a plan where somebody with a low IQ, a high IQ, somebody who's five years old and somebody who's 105 years old can all get saved the same way. You come up with a plan that's so genius that in one person's sin we all become sinners and God authors a plan where in one person's sacrifice we all have access to salvation and a restored relationship with God. The plan is brilliant. It's genius. It reveals the power of God to save. And what Paul is saying is, your pursuit of worldly Sophia uh, is not good. It amounts to nothing more in God's eyes than foolishness. God said, from my perspective, it's just, it's just big words. It's silly talk. It's just it's nonsense. It's foolishness. That's God's perspective. 
And I hope this morning you, like me, are concerned with God's perspective. (laughs) His perspective is, after all, the one we're trying to to follow this morning. So Paul opens chapter 3 with an assessment of the Corinthian church. So let's talk about Paul's assessment of the Corinthian church. I'll put the wheel up here because you guys are very familiar with the spiritual wheel here at Cornerstone. And when Paul assesses them, you see, they thought they were here. Parents. Right there. They thought they were right there. They thought, well, if you assess us, Paul, you're going to quickly conclude that we are very, very mature and very wise and very spiritually deep. That's who we are. But when Paul assessed them, he said, no, I think you're here. Infants. When Paul assessed them as infants, you can only imagine (laughs) they were not very happy. This did not go well. But to see that Paul is correct in his assessment, you have to look no further than their behavior and their attitudes, which is what reveals where they were in their spiritual development. Their own behavior and attitudes stand as evidence against them. Let me read 1 Corinthians 3, the opening Part. You ready? If you want to underline some things as we go, follow in your journal. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak unto you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. Now, I want you to underline the word babies. There's his assessment. But I want you to circle the next two words, in Christ, because those two words also reveal something very profound. Let me read verse number 2. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not ready for it. In fact, you still are not ready. One phrase repeated there twice. You were not ready, you're still not ready. Because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife, if you want to underline those two words, this is exhibit A in their behavior envy and strife among you and you are are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans so i want you to underline the word behaving because that's the issue here how are they behaving reveals where they are on the spiritual assessment and then i want you to look at those words mere humans they're going to show up again and i'll tell you what to do with those two words are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans verse 4 For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? Now, Paul's assessment is that these are not spiritual people at all. That the Corinthians are people of the flesh. Now, you have to figure out how to interpret what those phrases mean. These are not spiritual people at all. They are people of the flesh. Now, I want to qualify so no one's confused. Hey, Andrew, can you just turn... Am I too loud in y'all's ears? I'm loud in my ears. Okay, good. So, I want you to know there's nothing wrong with being a spiritual infant. If you were recently saved. And that qualifier makes a big, big difference, by the way. There's nothing wrong with being a spiritual infant. If you got saved recently, maybe the last few months, last six months, maybe even last year, there's nothing wrong with being a spiritual infant. If, if, if salvation and your walk with, if that's new, well, that's where we all started. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. You are very valuable even as a spiritual infant. But Paul's point is something very different. He's known these people for many years. Many years they've been exchanging communication. That zero Corinthians thing we're talking about, that prequel to 1 Corinthians. He's coached them. He's been there. They've talked. He led them to Christ. Many years have passed. There's now something seriously wrong in your spiritual development if you've been saved for several years and you're still thinking like an unsaved person. Or you're still acting like an unsaved person. Uh, To sum it up, it means there's been no spiritual transformation since you received Christ as your Savior. So when Paul says they're not spiritual people, what Paul has done is Paul's exposed himself to being misunderstood by all of us who come later and are reading these words because we don't have the zero Corinthians letters to know what the prequel was all about. And so now we hear Paul talking like this, you're not spiritual people. Now Paul's opened himself up to misunderstanding because people are going to ask, so they're not saved, right? Or they're saved, but they don't have the Holy Spirit, right? Is there such a thing as, as that? And so now Paul's opened himself up to all of these questions. Can a person be saved and not have the Holy Spirit? Well, let's just deal with that very quickly. The answer is no. The answer is no. Let Paul himself explain since he also wrote the book of Romans, every Christian has the Holy Spirit or they're not Christians or they're not saved. Let me read Romans 8 verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives where? In you. You have the Spirit. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Is that pretty clear? You got the Holy Spirit when you received Jesus as your Savior. It's called the Spirit of God. He's called the Spirit of Christ. It's called the Holy Spirit. It's that part of God that comes to live inside of you. We call the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And if you have not the Spirit of God, you don't belong to God, is what Paul is saying. So when Paul is talking to these people, we want to be very careful in, in, in what's happening. These people do have God's Spirit. Now, I had you note some words when we were going. He speaks to them as brothers and sisters. I'm not able to speak to you as people of the Spirit, but people of the flesh, as babies. Watch the next two words. As babies in Christ. They are in Christ. And Christ is in them. And this is precisely the problem. Precisely the problem is that these are saved people. That was settled in chapter number 1, where about eight, nine times Paul just continually calls out, I know you're saved, I know you have the Spirit, I call you brother and sisters, I know you've called upon my Lord and your Lord, I know you've made that already a part of your life. The problem is not that they don't have the Spirit and that they're not saved, the problem is that they don't act like they're saved. They don't think like they're saved. There's been no transformation, and what Paul calls them, it's an interesting term here in verse number 3, his issue is that they're acting like mere humans. Do you see that phrase in verse 3? Curse again in verse 4. Mere humans. I want you to write in your journal beside those words, mere humans, these two words, unsaved humans. Now Paul's problem is you're acting like unsaved humans. So as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians and you see Paul use word mere humans or just acting like normal humans. Normal humans are unsaved humans. 
And that is the big issue. You do have God's Spirit, but you act like you don't have God's Spirit. And that, I'm afraid, is just not acceptable. Not being transformed after your sin is just not acceptable. Now, Paul's got a twofold goal here. First of all, he's attempting to get them to stop thinking like people who are outside of the kingdom of God. As people who have God's Spirit, thinking like the world is no longer an option for them. Secondly, he's trying to get them to stop behaving like the other pagan citizens of Corinth. And as evidence for his charge, Paul presents right out of the gate, Exhibit A, your behavior, envying, strife, divisions. And he puts it right out there and he says, this is the behavior of someone who throws themselves on the floor and throws a temper tantrum, just like you would say, well, that's the behavior of a baby. Envy, strife, and divisions is the behavior of a spiritual infant. Again, it's not that they don't have the Spirit. The issue is that they do have the Spirit. They just don't think or act like it. They're still acting and thinking like the unsaved world around them. So, the teaching here is that people who have the Holy Spirit in them should be in the process of transformation. Now, around here we call that discipleship process. It's that process of being a spiritual infant, getting saved, receiving Christ, being a spiritual infant, and then beginning a path, a process, where you start changing the way, let me say you start, the Holy Spirit starts changing the way you're thinking. The Holy Spirit starts transforming your behavior. You're walking with the spiritual parent in your life, a mentor, a disciple maker, and little by little over some months, over maybe a year or two, you look back and you're like, wow, I'm not the person I used to be. I see things differently now. I see them more like God sees them. I, I, I feel differently now. My emotions are more like in line with Christ's emotions. I, I, I'm on a different mission. You know, before I got saved, I was doing whatever I wanted to do. Now I'm seeing that God has a mission for my life and I'm to be on His mission for my life. Now, you're, you're, you may be wondering, why did Paul bring this up? Why did Paul bring up that their behavior had never changed and they were just spiritual infants. Obviously, Paul brought this up because the Corinthians are involved in all sorts of behavior that runs contrary to the Holy Spirit. Now, just hold on till we get to chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and you'll see they're involved in all kinds of behavior that goes against the, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Apparently, in 0 Corinthians, in the prequel, and whatever exchange happened prior to this, the Corinthians had accused Paul of being shallow and unspiritual. The Corinthians, these baby Christians now, looked to the Apostle Paul and said, well, you don't have the Spirit, we do. We've got, we've got more. That's kind of what's happening here. We've got Spirit, yes we do. <laughs> yeah, uh, so they're taunting Paul in these prequel letters, zero, they're taunting Paul, and they're saying, we're so sophisticated down at Corinth, we have higher wisdom, we have Greco-Roman philosophy, we're bringing that right in the church, we're bringing our tolerance of sexual perversion right in the church, we're bringing, we're bringing all of the world's philosophies into the church, and our tolerance, and, 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 and see how they took pride in this, 
They took pride in how wicked they were and how tolerant they were. And they said, see, this is a mark of how developed we are and how Sophia uh, rich we are and how, how sophisticated we are. Why, Paul, you never told us about irresistible grace. Why, Paul, you never told us about superlapsarianism. Why, Paul, you never told us about fill in your pet doctrine right here. All you ever talk about, Paul, is the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. The cross, the cross, the cross. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Listen, we're way beyond that now. We're talking about the deep, hidden spiritual mysteries. Paul's just like... Do you, you get the rub here? Do you get the friction? Now you're understanding 1 Corinthians. Because this is the friction of 1 Corinthians. Paul's just like, oh my gosh, how did I fail these people? <laughs> you know, what, what are we going to do to get this back on track? When Paul starts talking about babies and milk, those aren't Paul's words. He's flipping their words back on them. Do you see that? They had written something like that to Paul, which we don't have. So Paul now flips it back. Watch what he says. Verse number 1. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. He's answering the charge. Paul, why you just treat us like babe? All you ever do is Jesus, 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 cross, 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 cross. We're ready for the deep things of God. He's like, no, no, frankly, you're not. Watch what he says. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, verse 2, because you were not, you were not, you were not ready for it. In fact, you, you're still not ready for it. I feel like I failed you as a parent. Not only were you a child then, you're still an infant now. And it's not that these people need a change of diet. They need a change of perspective. They need to change their thinking and their behavior. And Paul's goal is to move them from their fascination with Sophia wisdom of the world and Greek philosophy and all of Platonism and all of this back to the gospel, which is the wisdom and the power of God. So it's very clear that the Corinthians have a misguided understanding of the church and of the leadership of the church. So in the next paragraphs of chapter 3, Paul uses three different images to make his point, to drive home his teaching. And the first image he uses on them is the church as God's farm illustration. So the Corinthians have developed their own slogans to describe the church. This is zero Corinthians. We figured this out by studying Corinthians all of these years, that these exchanges that happened are being answered in 1 Corinthians. And the Corinthians have developed slogans. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am this. They've developed slogans that describe their church. And their slogans, their own speech, reveals their fundamental misunderstanding of the church and the role of church leaders. So at this point, we really wish we had those letters. Because if we had the zero Corinthians letters that were going back and forth between them and Paul, I think we'd chuckle. To hear how haughty and how sophisticated they thought we were. And Paul's just like, these kids want the key to the car. They're sitting in a poopy diaper. I mean, you know, just it, we would chuckle at what is happening here. And we would understand how misguided the Corinthians were 
they think they are the spiritual elites. Now, you're really going to see this when we get to chapter 11. That starts talking about tongues and spiritual gifts. They think they're the spiritual elites and that Paul's a spiritual baby. And it must have been very humbling for the Corinthian church to hear these words of Paul where Paul now likens the spiritual growth of the Corinthian church to a farm. A farm. What the what, Paul? (laughs) They're like, we are sophisticated Greek philosophers down here. We are not hayseeds running around in our bare feet marrying our sisters, okay? And Paul's addressing them. He's like, well, let's keep it simple for the babies. Let's talk about God's church as a farm. Their slogans, which he turned back on them, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, have divided the congregation. And the the Corinthians thought that Christians belonged, belonged to a spiritual leader. I'm Bobby's, I'm Jeremy's, I'm David's. And that's the way they had divided the congregation up. You belonged to a certain leader in the church. Well, we, all, we already know that this is, this is not where, where Paul wants to take this. Let me read verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Now I want everybody to catch these next words. You may want to underline these. They are servants. Let me read the whole verse. What is Apollos? What is Paul? I'm a Paul. I'm a Paul. What is Paul? What is Apollos? They are servants through whom you believed. And each has their role as the Lord has given. Now, I want to stay with Paul's assessment for a minute. What is Paul and Paul? They are servants. Now, we have some of our professional staff in the room, I think. I see Jeremy there. David, you in the room somewhere? Okay, let's get a witness right here. Professional staff, what are we? We're servants. Are there any elders in the room? Elders, what are we? Are there any deacons in the room? What are we? Are there any D group leaders, discipleship leaders in the room? What are we? Are we covenant members here this morning? What are we? See, now, if you've got that, you're light years ahead of Corinth. Because Paul comes to them and says, Christian leaders are merely servants. We are not masters to whom others belong. Well, praise God. Isn't that awesome? We don't belong to any other human being. Church leaders are not masters in a master-slave context to whom you can belong. And what Paul does is he takes this servant imagery and now he places the servants onto a farm. So I've got to ask you this morning, let's all go to the farm. You know, put on your overalls and get your, you know, your hoe and let's all go to the farm, okay? Let me read verse 6. I planted. So I want you to draw a picture in your mind right now. I want you to see Paul in his overalls. He's got a bag over his shoulder, like a messenger bag, and that bag is filled with seed, doing it old school way. And Paul's got a stick in his hand, four foot long, with a sharpened point on the end. Boink, 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 boink. And he's just putting the seed there in the ground. 
Paul planted. Here's his imagery. Watch. Apollos watered. I want you to see Apollos in his rubber boots with his water can following behind Paul. Watering the seeds, walking down the rows where Paul has just planted the seed. Now let's read the last phrase. But God gave the growth. Okay, well let's circle back to the the teaching again. What is our role? Servants. We're servants on the farm. But who gives the spiritual growth? God. Verse 7. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Here, Paul's making this so simple. Since you cannot belong to a servant, servant doesn't own anyone. Since you can't belong to a servant, we must all focus on being God's people. How simple is that? You see, each of us has a role, sure, but none of us farmers can make the corn grow. That belongs to a higher power than is a pay grade way above us. We are servants, but the one who makes the sun shine and the rain come and the, and the corn grow, that is only God. Now, Paul takes that. Now he stresses both the diversity, because we are a diverse people in the body of Christ. But he takes our diversity and pulls us together in unity. Watch verse number 8. Now, he who plants, one role. He who waters, diverse role, are one. Unity in the church. And each will receive his reward according to his labor. What Paul's saying is simply this, on the farm, if you guys can grasp the, the metaphor, on the farm, everybody's pulling their own weight. Listen, on the farm, somebody's got to feed the chickens, somebody's got to milk the cows, and somebody's planting, somebody's watering. We're all working together as a group, and we're all working together as a group because we want to get in a great harvest. That is the goal. There is a mission we're all working in unison toward. Paul and Apollos are not lords to whom you can belong. There is only one Lord to whom we all belong. We are all part of a collective. It's not a bad word. A team. We are similar here at Cornerstone to a team of servants working a farm. (laughs) Can you see all of this illustration going over like a lead balloon with the sophisticated Corinthians? And that's exactly what happened. Let me speak on my own behalf for just a moment. As one of the pastors of Cornerstone, I do have essential tasks to perform. And I intend to do my best. And I believe that I will be rewarded for doing my best for Jesus Christ. But I want you all to know that I have no independent importance that makes me anything more than a servant of this church. Paul now shifts the metaphor slightly. Verse 9, for we are God's co-workers and you are God's field, God's building. So let me summarize this section. Paul's saying that spiritual leaders should see themselves, and let me just say spiritually, deacons, elders, discipleship leaders, faithful men, leaders in a church should see themselves as co-workers, not belonging to someone else, no co-fellow laborers. These are some of Paul's favorite terms now, co-workers and fellow laborers. Listen, write in your journal here, Romans chapter 16. Make yourself a note to read Romans 16 this week. 
Romans 16 is one full chapter in your Bible where Paul lists some of his co-workers. He says, these are my fellow apostles. These are my fellow elders. These are my fellow deacons. These are my fellow ministers. These are the people who have laid down their neck, risked life and fortune for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, you saw at the end of verse number 9, you are God's field. You are God's building. Paul's championing unity, but now he's shifting the metaphor. The second illustration Paul uses as the church as God's building. So, I'm going to need each of you to use your imagination right now. Put on your steel-toed work boots. Get your tool belt. Put on your hard hat because it's required. And like any proper construction site we're about to visit, there are going to be a lot of hazards. And so Paul comes out with an immediate warning when he talks about the construction site metaphor. Verse 10. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. And another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds. I've laid the foundation like a wise master builder. But somebody else is building on that foundation now. And you need to be careful how, I underline those words, be careful. In this building metaphor, Paul is now warning those who are leading the church. He says, you're building on the foundation that I laid, and here's my warning. Be careful how you lead the church. Be careful how you build on the foundation. Listen, we have a very young church. I mean, you just glance around this room. The average age in our church is 31 and a half. It's a young church. And we have a lot of young men and women leading our church. It's a very unique demographic we have here. Here's my challenge to all of us, young and old. Be careful how you lead. Some other generation has got us to this point. And in our church, it is time now for the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. Step up and lead. Step up and lead. We're good with it. We're good with young leadership. All we would say is, someone else got things this far. Be careful how you build now. Do, do a good job. You say, why is Paul bringing this up? Because in 0 Corinthians, Paul discovered that the church leaders were building in a way that would not stand the fiery test that was coming. And the church was in jeopardy of perishing because they were building with inferior and perishable materials. By laying the foundation of Jesus Christ through preaching the gospel and teaching the gospel, Paul said, I've acted as a wise master builder. Now you can trash talk me if you want, but listen, I laid you a foundation that will not crack. I've laid you a foundation that will see you all the way to eternity. And the foundation I laid was not Plato and Socrates and the wisdom of this world and pop psychology. and No, I laid the foundation of Corinth in Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross and the gospel that he died, buried, and rose again. That is the foundation. Now the next generation build on that foundation. Be careful. We're passing the torch now to a new group of leaders Someone else is building, and I'm very concerned that they may not be building something that will last 
on that foundation. Let me read verse 11 through 15. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, for each, one will be, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work, and if anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will experience a loss, but... He himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, let me see if I can explain those verses as quickly as possible. Paul's saying, I started the building program with the highest quality materials. The gospel, the cross, the resurrection, the person of Christ. That is a solid foundation. But sometime later, some new construction foremen, I I went on to Ephesus and other places, and now new construction foremen have risen up in the church, and now they are building the church And I'm afraid they have now substituted the quality building materials with inferior building materials of the world's wisdom. And I want you to know when the tests come, the world's wisdom is not going to hold up. A day of judgment is coming which will test how we have built, whether of perishable or imperishable materials. And it's going to reveal the quality of work and therefore be determinative of what reward we're going to receive. For Paul, it is self-evident that the kind of material that goes into the workmanship will eventually manifest itself openly. Now, don't all of you homeowners already know this? You already know this. All of us have already discovered something that the builder substituted a little inferior something for something that should have been done differently. Let's just say it that way. Things were not always done exactly. Listen, it always comes out eventually. The work will be revealed. The day of judgment will expose everyone's workmanship. And those who build the church with the gospel, focusing on the cross and Jesus and the resurrection and the person of Christ, they will see at their day of testing a reward coming their way because that will stand the test of time. And those who built massive pseudo-Christian movements on pop psychology and getting in touch with your feelings and whatever else people are building on today. Paul said it may look good right now, but it's all going to come crashing down when it's put to the fiery test. Now, I want you to catch this. Paul is very quick, very quick to clarify that he is not saying you can lose your salvation. Notice how he did that right at the end. The context here is not a... Let me clarify another myth. Maybe we'll deal with this more in the podcast this week. The church has mistaught this quite a bit. The context here is not about building your individual life on the foundation of Jesus. That is not the context of this passage, of this paragraph. Paul is addressing the church as a whole. The church corporately and leadership in particular. And he's saying we do not build the church of Jesus on, like I said, pop psychology or the world's philosophy or great managerial techniques or good feelings. Those are merely human. And they are destined for destruction. He's saying to the church, you need to build well. There's no need for us to build badly, ladies and gentlemen. 
We've been given a strong foundation. Let's build well on that foundation. We have the word of God. We have the gospel. We, we have the truth. Let's build well in our generation. Listen, you're just watching every week people be saved all over the world through the ministry of your church. Our church, the Lord's church that we're a part of right here. Listen, there's no need for us to build badly. We can build well. We can build very well just using the gospel and the great material that God has given us. Now, in the farm paragraph and in the building paragraph, Paul is correcting the Corinthians' flawed view of the church leadership. I belong, I don't belong. I He's correcting their flawed thinking about church leadership, and he does it by redirecting from the focusing on the teacher, I'm from the school of Apollos. No, I'm from the school of Christ. He keeps focusing them back on God. Now, in the next paragraph, Paul's going to correct their flawed understanding of the very nature of the church. So here we move to another challenge now. He's going to challenge them and us to rethink what the church means to our community. And Paul does this by using the picture of the church as God's temple. Paul says the church is God's temple. Now these pagans knew all about temples. Theirs was a very different culture than yours. Their town was littered with temples. Temples everywhere to pagan idols. Paul's using very intentional language here. And he's going to start talking about the church as God's temple. Verse 16. Don't you yourselves know? I mean, you seem to know everything, so surely you know this. There is sarcasm here. I want you to read it as being sarcastic. Since you know everything, then you obviously know this. Don't you know that you are God's temple? Uh, You know that, surely. And that the Spirit of God lives in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is, what's the word Paul uses here? God's temple is holy. And that is what you are. God's holy temple. Now, if you've got your journal, I want you to circle or underline all the U's in those two verses, 16 and 17. Take just a second. Just underline and circle all the U's. And then I want you to write out in the margin in your journal journal over on the lines. Those U's in the Greek language, all are actually in the Greek the word you all. After all, Corinth is in southern Greece, so you all. When Paul addresses them, this whole context is not about any individual The whole context of this passage is not about building your individual life or or individually you are filled with the Spirit. That is true, but that's not the teaching of this passage. And what we do sometimes is we take truths we know from other places in the Bible and we read them back into. Don't do that here because Paul's not talking to individuals. He's talking to you all, corporately, the whole group of you. Don't you yourselves know that all of you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in, let me use the word us, us collectively. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. And that's what you all are. So now in any pagan temple of the first century, you would find in that temple, if you went inside, the image, a statue, an idol to the person 
that the temple was dedicated to. This is just 101 idolatry now. Hopefully you've got this already. In other words, if you went to Ephesus and you went to the temple of Diana Artemis, you know who you would find in there? You'd find a big statue, a big idol, big image of Diana in the temple of Diana. Uh, if in Corinth you went down to the temple of Dionysus or Bacchus, whether you use Roman or Greek, if you went to the temple of Dionysus in, in Corinth, you would expect to walk into the temple and look, there, there they are, right there. There's the idol of Dionysus standing in the temple of Dionysus. Now watch how Paul's using language here. In the temple of God, which in their context is the Corinthian church, we should find the living images, the living icons of God in the temple of God. You see where we're going here. If we go in the temple of God, you know whose image we should find in the temple of God? God's image. The living images, the living icons of God should be in there, which is what you are. That's what he's telling them. In the temple of God, the Corinthian church, we have the presence of the Spirit of God. His Spirit inhabits His temple, and that's what you are. Now, I guess to bring this home to us, let's just replace Corinth with Fort Worth. You all are God's people in Fort Worth. Amen? Okay, good. Collectively, you all are God's temple in Fort Worth. We should be able to go into the temple of God in Fort Worth, the assembly of God's people... And we should expect to find living images of God at Cornerstone Church in Fort Worth, Texas. This is where we're going. This is what Paul's saying. When you go into the temple, you expect to find the image of God. Now, that's true in first century Corinth. And it's also true right now, 2021, in Fort Worth, Texas. In this modern contemporary world, we haven't outgrown this teaching. That God expects us to be living images of Him. When you come to Cornerstone Church in Fort Worth, you know what we expect to find? The Holy Spirit of God filling the atmosphere where God's people have gathered together. So, So now a big warning to everyone. Do not destroy God's temple or God will destroy you. You see, God's temple, I'm going to make modern application now, This church is holy to God. In God's eyes, His church is holy. And therefore, it must become holy in our sight also. For you to see God's church as optional, to see it as, yeah, take it or leave it, to see it as, I'm not sure it's too effective, I'm not sure it's that important, is to not have the mind of Christ. The church is holy to God, whose church you are. You're His idols. You're filled with His Spirit. We are God's temple. Paul, why bring this up? Paul, why are you bringing this up? (laughs) Because holiness was not the Corinthian strong suit. And I'm afraid it's not ours either. In America. We don't talk too much about holiness anymore. 
but we need to see the church as something sacred because it's something sacred to God. You see, to God, the church is his alternative to the world. Uh, Let me see if I can clarify that. This is his place. This is where his spirit fills the atmosphere. This is where his worship flows. This is where you can find his images. This is where you can hear his message. This is a place where they champion his values. This is the place where people speak with his wisdom. So I want to challenge you, do not take the church lightly, because in God's eyes, we represent God to this community. This is what Paul's saying to the Corinthians, guys, 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 let's get this dirty diaper off of you and get you grown up, because you represent God to this pagan community. And if there's no difference between the pagan community and you, you're not representing God very well to the pagan community. Come on, guys, you are holy. You are God's temple. Because here the world comes into contact with God's holy community. Here is where the world can encounter the moving of God's Holy Spirit. Here is where you can bring someone and they can hear not the wisdom of this age, but the ageless wisdom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here, lives are changed eternally by the power of the living God. Let let me close with this last paragraph because the Corinthians had these slogans. I told you, we belong to, we belong to. And that was one of their favorite slogans they they threw out. We belong to, insert celebrity pastor here. And you can see how that's very applicable to America right now. Very applicable. We belong to. So in the final paragraph, Paul completely reverses their sayings. He's going to use their own words against them in court here. He's going to reverse their sayings and he's going to say to them, No, all of us belong to Christ. Watch how he does it. The closing argument has two parts. If you've got your pen ready, the two parts are distinguished with three words. Let no one. If you'll underline let no one, look down, I think around verse 21, you'll see it again. Let no one. So there's two parts to the closing argument. Let me deal with the first. Verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can actually become wise. If anyone thinks he is wise, why would Paul bring that up? You tell me, why would Paul bring that up? Because they thought they were so wise. And he said, you know what, you think you're so wise, but actually, look at those opening words, let no one deceive himself. Your wisdom, this world's wisdom, your Platonism and your Socratic thing, it has actually caused you to be self-deceived. You have deceived yourself about what is wise and what is foolish. To reinforce the truth, Paul now makes a fresh application from his Bible. He's going to quote the Old Testament back to back. Watch him do it. In your margin now next to verse 19, write Job 15, 13. He's going to quote the book of Job. Here's what Paul says. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. That's Job 15, 
13. And just in case they missed the point, Paul said, let me just quote another Old Testament passage for you. This is Psalms 94, verse 11. Verse 20 is actually Psalms 94, verse 11. And again, I quote the Old Testament, The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are futile. Just a waste of energy. What what Paul does is he uses these two quotes to remind them that the wisdom of the ancients, the psalmists, Eliphaz, Job, the ancient people mentioned in the book of Job, the wisdom of the ancients aligns perfectly with Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. Let me clarify. With all of the world's scientific genius and with unlimited access to Acme products, the schemes of the crafty always circle back and entrap the crafty. The world thinks it's so smart until the cliff falls on top of them. Now, say it another way. Just as the coyote looks foolish, every time his clever schemes backfire, so human reasoning and scheming is just foolishness to God. And I'm sure we give him lots of laughs with our smarts. I'm sure. Verse 21, so let no one boast in human leaders. Now I want you to underline, for everything is yours. Underline that phrase, for everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, underline it, everything is yours. Look at this next verse. And you, help me with these next words, belong, maybe you want to underline that too, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Now, I can wrap this pretty quickly. What Paul's saying to them is this, to think that you can be owned by another human Lord is to think like the world. The world's all about owning people. And of course, this was written in the first century when slavery was just thriving in the Roman Empire. Listen, to think you belong to someone, that's the world's way of thinking. No human is to belong to another human because the gospel is liberating. The gospel sets you free. So now let's deal with Paul's questions as we conclude. Does everything belong to God? What do you think about that? Does everything belong to God? You, you, you agree with Paul? Uh, the theologian Gordon Fee, I saw a beautiful quote I want to put up. In the form of a cross, God has planted his flag on planet earth and marked it as his own possession. Isn't that beautiful? God has planted his flag in the form of a cross and said, I own this. Yes, he has. So you agree with Paul that everything then belongs to Christ because Christ is God. You okay with that statement? All right. Let me ask you something very personal. Do you belong to Christ? You see, we want to put this in context. Paul didn't say all things are yours willy-nilly. 
That's not what he said. Keep it in context. If you belong to Christ, then everything is yours. Happy dance right here. Woot, woot. You get it all. If you belong to Christ, everything is yours. You see, your destiny is not to be owned. Your destiny is ownership. We now cycle all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, where God created you to rule planet Earth. Paul takes us all the way back to the beginning and said, your destiny has always been living icons, living images of the Holy God, filled with His Spirit, ruling as vassal kings, God's great planet. And because you are God's, all things are yours. Listen, that truth, that reality that Paul presented to the Corinthians and I presented to you this morning should change your perspective. It should change your understanding. It should change your minds and your attitude. And ultimately what Paul said is this truth should change our behavior. Let me circle back to it one more time. Same question I just asked. Do you belong to Christ? That really is the question. Uh, yesterday in the memorial, I, I said that the question of the hour now is this. Where's Tiffany? And it all comes down to this. Do you belong to Christ? I hope you do. If you don't, let me tell you how you can belong to Christ. And he's the only one you need to belong to. The Bible tells us, here is the gospel, that Christ died for your sins. You're a sinner before God and you cannot pay for your own sins. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God demonstrated his love toward you. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. The Apostle Paul would later write that if you believe in your heart, and you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And all of that language simply means this. Belief has to arrive, arise inside of you. You have to come to a place where you understand I'm a sinner in God's eyes. And I'm willing to admit that to God. And I'm willing to say I can't save myself. And I'm willing to put my faith and trust in God's Son, Jesus Christ, and ask Him to forgive me and save me. I'm ready to make Him the King and Lord of my life. Belief begins to happen, and we like to follow that with a prayer that articulates what's happening in our heart. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If you've never prayed that prayer, I want you just to follow with me. My words are not magic words, and this is not a magic formula. I'm just trying to help those who need to call upon the Lord for salvation have some framework. If you're ready to do that, I want you to pray with me right now. Pray like this. Dear God... God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I know you already know that, but I, I want you to know that I know I'm a sinner. And God, I need a Savior. I can't save myself. So God, the best way that I know how I want to say to you that I believe. I believe that Jesus is your son. 
I believe you sent him to this world. And he lived a perfect life and he gave his life on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe that. And I believe that after he died, he was buried and he rose again to be my living Savior and to give me hope of eternal life. So God, I want to say to you today, please forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart and into my life and be the Lord, Savior, King of my life. I am yours. I belong to you now. belong to me thank you for saving me and thank you for loving me in Jesus name